You 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 know I D I D in the D in the town all day. I D I D in the D in the F E A. You you know I D I D in the D in the town all day. I D I D in the D in the F E A. We'll talk about that later. Uh, this is not the time for that because now it's time for us to remember a year that, as we noted, was kind of a precedent in some ways for what we're experiencing now, uh, due to a a tragedy of a different sort in terms of 9-11, and that's the year 2001. Do we want to start there? I mean, this is obviously... I think we should. Up, up until maybe right now, we don't know. On, on a national level, this is the most important thing that happened in our entire lives. It is the where were you moment for yes. those of us who were... I mean, the And we've only, got two of them in this podcast. Yes. I mean, the only thing that... Two, two where were you bad moments... <laughs> Well, where were you moments are usually good. I don't. I mean, I guess they they can be, but it's usually like you know the Kennedy assassination, uh, the Challenger explosion in 1986. Was I think a bit of that, but we were pretty young for that one. I have no recollection of this. You wouldn't. You were one year old, if that. Uh, but yeah, I mean, everyone has their story. Everyone knows exactly where they were. You were in school, right? I had just gotten to school. Uh, and it was like in the hallway milling about beforehand. I was going to say, I thought the Challenger explosion was on my birthday. Nope, not even close. Um, it was in January. <laughs> uh, it was one of those things where it's like you sort of found out about it through word of mouth. Some people were still at home because it was on the news. But again, I wasn't watching the news before I left for school. I was watching whatever uh, and then took the bus. And then so people were chattering about it. And then in class that entire day, nobody learned, right? Like, we're just they watching class? the TV. They didn't send you home? No. I'm surprised by that. They didn't send us home. We still had class the entire day. I mean, I, I don't think that – we were probably a little bit scared, you know? But it didn't – I don't think it ne- ever felt like Seattle, Washington was in imminent danger, you know? See, you mentioned something about this the other day. I mean, I, I, I don't think that Seattle was in imminent danger, but there was like a period of time where any time you saw a plane flying low or, you know, not where you expected it to be, where it was, it was like, it was ominous, as you said. And the planes were gone from the sky instantly, though, by that night. Correct. But the, I was surprised. I looked this up last week in preparation for this. The, the uh, flight uh, ban was only two days. I, I, I expected it had been long. I recalled it as longer than that. Huh. Um, well, but I mean, like, for like months afterwards, I remember thinking that. I don't ever remember feeling that way. I think we were a little bit freaked out. Not a little bit. We were a lot bit freaked out. But it was never like, I don't remember a moment of like, I'm going to die from this. Does that make sense? No, it was more yeah, like, I mean, holy shit, that's weird. I probably even thought like, let's say that something were to happen in Seattle. We're like, okay, what are the targets in Seattle? The Space Needle? You know what I mean? Like, it didn't feel like me at tiny high school in SeaTac, Washington, which granted we were right next to the airport, uh, was going to be something that was going to be attacked by a plane. Worst case scenario. Sure, but it still felt it was it was a disorienting feeling to have a tragedy of that scale unfold on American scale uh, soil. Uh huh. Unprecedented. I mean, but so we, we're just sitting there. I remember the only other time this happened in school, because I was still in school when this happened, is when the first day of the war in Iraq, and we didn't do any work that day. It was just sitting in classrooms, no matter what it was, all the way from history to drama to language arts or whatever. We're just watching TV, 
right? Like the teachers just rolled in the TV and were watching CNN or whatever. So I was at UW. This was the start of my sophomore year at UW. And uh, classes don't start at UW until late September or the start of October. So I wasn't in school yet. I was over at our cousin David's house spending the night. And, uh, you know, like, like everyone else vividly recall it because so I was I was out in there like downstairs, you know, kind of rec room and there wasn't a clock in there. So I woke up and to find out what time it was turned on the TV in a way that I wouldn't probably normally have done and immediately saw it on the news and uh, had to wake up our cousin and tell him what had happened. What, what was going on at that point? What had happened? I think it was after the second plane had hit, but before that, the, the towers had collapsed. Wow. See, I saw none of this stuff, right? I'm just like sitting in school. Everything was done by the time I was aware. Like the Pentagon plane had gone down. Both of the towers were down by the time I was aware. I just and I think that's maybe even more why like I was maybe a little bit less freaked out because I wasn't watching it in real time in the same way that other people were. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the big things I remember is just watching news coverage for days on end, you know, in part because there wasn't anything else on, but also because you just you couldn't turn away at that point. I feel like I pretty quickly pivoted to being annoyed about the response. I, it's like we maybe gave it a week, right? But then there was that instant, like, how long was it? Oh, God, well, it was Clear Channels, right? This is Clear Channel, isn't it? That had the band songs. And at this point, which we'll talk about later, I was very into music by, like, I defined my personality by September 2001 around music. And it was like, I was angry about this. About the Clear Channel list of band songs. So this intersects to some degree with Seattle sports because, as I mentioned, baseball shut down for about a week. And on the second day that the Mariners were back playing, they won to clinch the AL West and uh, a very emotional moment parading the flag around the field as they celebrated that that accomplishment. No recollection. Hated the Mariners at this point. <laughs> <laughs> we've, we've gone over on the Lookout Landing podcast your feelings about the 2001 Mariners, but they were busy tying the all-time Major League record for regular season wins with 116 in Ichiro's rookie season as he won both Rookie of the Year and MVP. And you were like, hmm, not impressed. Oh, didn't care at all. <laughs> Hated him. You just have nothing positive to say about the 2001 Mariners? About the 2001 Mariners? Yeah. No, not at all. They lost. Uh, you'll recall that this was the year that Safeco Field hosted the All-Star Game. I remember that you went to the rookie game. That is, I've forgotten about that. Yeah, I went like, Which, all by myself to the rookie. Game. The rise, it's like the prospects game. It's not like a rookie game because it's minor leaguers. Can I read you some of the songs from the Clear Channel? It's called Clear Channel Memorandum on Wikipedia. Sure, by the way. I think that's of a piece with. Uh, let's remember some years. Uh, <laughs> just like the galaxy brain that went into Clear Channel making this list of songs and like what Stephen Miller logic was going on of being like, people can't hear these things. I feel, uh, like, I feel like this is the first time I recall hearing about Clear Channel as a corporation. Yeah, we were definitely became a lot more aware of Clear Channel. 
What a Wonderful World by Louis Armstrong. It's just like, they're like, nope, gone. People cannot hear about the world being wonderful. Walk Like an Egyptian by the Bengals, because they're like, mm, close to the Middle East. Uh, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, because of the mentioned sky. Obla di Obla da, cannot talk about life going on. Um, <laughs> so insane, some of these. Any song that references anything that's hypothetically, like, sort of negative, like Blue Oyster, Oyster Cult talking about Burning For You, or the song Fire by The Crazy World of Arthur Brown. I mean, because of the fire that was involved, I, I get that a little bit more. Um, <laughs> on Broadway, Broadway cannot be mentioned. Knocking on Heaven's Door, Santa Monica by Everclear. I'm not even sure what happened in Santa Monica by Everclear. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> It's just like nobody can think about anything. Benny and the Jets, nope. <laughs> it mentions the word jet, yes. <laughs> anything flight-related? Anything flight-related? Potentially death-related or positive? American Pie, because that's about a plane crash. Metallica, they pretty much should have just banned everything that was on the Metallica catalog that would have been played on Clear Channel. Um Peter, Paul, and Mary, blowing in the wind, <laughs> had to come down. Um, what about the uh, James Taylor like, song? This is, oh, my God. This is, oh, I've seen Fire and I've seen Rain, of course. Yeah. Um, the <laughs> Rage Against the Machine, all songs. <laughs> the Red Hot Chili Peppers, Under the Bridge, for a general feeling of sadness. Because you can't feel general feelings of pos- positivity or general feelings of sadness. There were some pretty good games in this All-Stars Futures game. There's some pretty good pretty, players, I should pretty say. Pretty good players. I, my favorite one, though, is the song Jump by Van Halen, where it's like... Well, people jumping out of the building. Oh, that's what you can't talk about. Yeah. Oh, so that's why Jumper by Third Eye Blind also is banned. Yeah, I mean, that was a pretty notable thing. <laughs> oh, my God. It, it would have been really fun to have been in this room and to have been like, nope. Th- th- so people were just bringing up songs. They're like, this one? They're like, nope, Sugar Rank, gotta go. And they, were, they were like, Rage Against the Machine. They were like, don't even get me started. They're like, just ban everything. Chase Utley oh went two, two of three with a solo home run. Adam Dunn <gasps> had a home run. Great. Uh... Yeah, those are the most notable players, probably. Well, okay, so for the Mariners for that season, I, I mean, I had paid, I don't know what changed between the 2000 and 2001 seasons. I just really felt like this is without, I was not judging Ichiro for his baseball playing abilities because I didn't understand at the time what he did wasn't actually that valuable. Um, I've only come to understand that later. And, but like, I just didn't like Ichiro. You know what I mean? Ah, uh, Ichiro is the best. You were this is your single worst take. I, I now in hindsight, I don't dislike Ichiro. I mean, I'm probably neutral on Ichiro, but it was just like there was something about him coming in, and it was like we were this. It's always about the indie mentality, right? Whereas like we were Mariners fans from back in the day. We were Kingdom Mariners fans. You know what I mean? And it was like Ichiro belonged to Safeco Field Mariners fans. It was like oh, this 100%. is a player. This is a player who belongs to a different class of Mariners fan than I am, and I am going to gatekeep the fuck out of those Mariners 
so much that I just refuse to even pay attention to them. But also, like, the story of Ichiro is fun, but it's, it, in an objective way, seeing a player like Ken Griffey Jr. or like Alex Rodriguez, like, when you see them grow from being, like, a neutral or, like, a kind of bad rookie and seeing them in the minor leagues and then growing into being a star, that is more fun. It's like Ichiro was a big free agent signing, and you'll never love a big free agent signing in the way that you'll love a homegrown player. I suppose that is perhaps true. Right? Like, the players that we're talking about when we're talking about the Pelicast Hall of Fame, we're not talking about <clears throat> and granted, no Mariner would ever make it. Um, no, <laughs> but it's not like Robin. Like Robinson Cano was a very good player when he was on the Mariners. But like you don't, you don't emotionally own Robinson Cano in oh, the same way true. that Jermaine Curse is like Jermaine Curse is go is nominated for the Pelton Cast Hall of Fame because we'd seen him grow up right in front of us. Right, we'd seen him go from college player who had difficulty with drops into scoring important touchdowns to send the Seahawks to the Super Bowl and scoring touchdowns in the Super Bowl. It was like Ichiro just appeared out of nowhere so fully polished, right? Would you like to guess which eight Mariners played in the All-Star game? Eight Mariners? Eight Mariners were in the All-Star game. Jesus Christ. Okay. <clears throat> well, we know Ichiro is, right? That is correct. Edgar? Correct. John Allard? Correct. Boone? Correct. Those are the four starters <clears throat> in the game. Steroids. Um, Jamie Moyer? Uh, not correct. Jamie Moyer didn't go. No. Oh, man. Was Buner good by that point? No, nah, he was mostly injured in reserve at the end of his career by that point. I'm at four right now. Hmm. <laughs> uh, you got to four so fast. Oh, man. Was Mike Cameron an all-star? That is correct. He was the last hitter. He was the only reserve hitter from the Mariners. Okay. Three so pitchers all, in the game. All hitters now, so thank you for that. Yeah. Um, I knew you were going to need some help. Aaron Seeley? No. I mean, the first uh, of these players came up... Two of these players have come up on Let's Remember Some Years recently. One more notable than the other. Freddie Garcia. That's number six, yes. Um, who was their closer that year? We talked about him last week. That doesn't mean that I remember last week. Ah. Oh. Uh, you want to give you the last two? Yeah, I'd give you the last two. They are this both relievers. Kazuhiro Sasaki. Oh, Sasaki. But also Jeff Nelson is a setup man made the All-Star wow, game really? that year. Yeah, I don't think I was getting those two. Yeah. So the Mariners... Well, that's, that's a lot of Mariners. That is a lot of Mariners. After winning the ALDS in five games over the Indians... Then lost 4-1 to the Yankees for the second consecutive year in the ALCS. Well, and so in that World Series in 2001, this was a Yankees-Mets World Series, right? No, 2000 was the Subway Series. 2001 was Yankees-Diamondbacks. Oh, okay. So th this wasn't the, this wasn't a, for a fateful World Series. Well, this it felt like a fateful World Series because, again, this was taking place a couple months after 9-11. Yes, that, that's like... what I was going to say. If, if I thought it was Yankees-Mets that happened, where it was just like, 
we can't stand in the way of fate. Nobody needs the Mariners to be in this. But it turned out the Diamondbacks and Randy Johnson did stand in the way of fate as they beat those Yankees in the World Series. Wow. Tate just walked into the lightsaber. <laughs> Sorry, Anakin? Uh, hey, Anakin, can you... You don't want to hear me talking about the year 2001. What, okay, so this was the second season that the Seahawks played at Husky Stadium, correct? Yes, and as we noted last week, they were shockingly good that season, going 9-7. and seven. Uh, This was a season where Trent Dilfer replaced Bill Hasselbeck. It's a, that's a hello? Oh, Trent Dilfer is a hello? Dilfer. Yeah, Dilfer's a hello. Bill Hasselbeck is the second greatest quarterback in Seahawks history, and in hindsight, it was like ridiculous that they didn't just let Hass cook. That's Seahawks legend Trent Dilfer to you. Thank you very much. Dilfer did go 4-0 in his starts that season, despite throwing uh, interceptions on 3.3%. I swear I remember Trent Dilfer winning the Super Bowl for a different team in 2001. <laughs> that was not in 2001, as it turns out. Who was, oh my god, I want to talk about that, that Super Bowl later, but who was the quarterback of the Ravens? No, he, he won. The, oh, I guess that was in 2001. You're right. Yeah, so this Super Bowl winner, Trent Dilfer, who won the Super Bowl in the calendar year 2001. Yeah, that's true. And you're true. telling me he doesn't get a hello? Okay, he gets a hello. He went 11-1 as a starter over a two-year stretch, winning the Super Bowl, and yet still wasn't a starter, full-time starter. I'm kind of amazing. Who did the Ravens replace him with? Well, they had Tony Banks was actually the starter. Did they did they sign Nair that offseason? The answer was Elvis Gerbach, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, Elvis oh, Gerbach was the starter in 2001. I mean, I, I specifically remember watching the 2001 Seahawks and coming to the conclusion that Trent Dilfer wasn't a better quarterback than Matt Hasselbeck, but that Mike Holmgren was, like, calling deep balls for Dilfer that he wouldn't for Hass because he was like playing super conservatively with Matt Hass at that point. He just didn't trust. He he didn't let Matt Hass cook. He didn't free Matt Hasselback. And you needed to go deep because Corin Robinson was uh, was catching a whole fifty percent of his passes. <laughs> oh no! Was he actually at a fifty percent catch rate? He did. Daryl Jackson oh was God. at fifty three percent. It was kind of a different time. <laughs> oh my God. We, I, this was Corn Robinson's rookie year. Yes, we loved Corn Robinson. Very in on Corn Robinson. I mean, that receiving core in general. Like, if you would have told me that in hindsight we'd look back on it and think that Corn Robinson was kind of a bust, that I would have never accepted that information. As like, Corn Robinson is the the second coming of Joey Galloway. This player is electric. I dispute you, your use of the term "kind of." <laughs> Wait, kind of, in regards to what? Him being a bust. Oh, well, uh, okay. I mean, I don't... I, I thought you were going to dispute that because you thought he was better than that. I, he did have good... I guess, I mean, maybe being unfair. He had two very good seasons the next two years. I, I mean, Averaged he was the 8.8 yards per target in 2002. But I mean, like, he, was probably, I, he was probably a marginally better player than Jermaine Curse. Wow. Which is what you're hoping for with the ninth pick. A 
marginally better. The Seahawks also drafted a fullback in the third round. If you want to talk about how times were different. Uh, did draft we also Hall- liked Heath Evans, too. We loved him. Sure. Uh, they also drafted a Hall of Famer in that year's draft. Yes. Steve Hutchinson. But my main memory of 2001... Who we have no mixed feelings about at all. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll get to that, I guess. In 2000? Or 2006, I mean. Uh, I mostly remember 2001 for, like, Sean Alexander breaking out as a star. Yeah, I think that if you would have asked us in 2001 who our favorite players in Seahawks history will be, Corn Robinson and Sean Alexander, who ironically nobody's favorite players in Seahawks history. There's got to uh, be some Sean Alexander fans out there. They're just not did, on this particular point. Didn't the Seahawks already have Max Strong when they drafted a fullback in the third round? I think so, yes. They drafted a backup fullback. Well, they, they drafted him as the Max Strong's successor. Max Strong was getting up there. <laughs> you got to make sure. you got to prepare a few years out for the successor at fullback. You know, we did a group watch of the 2012 Seahawks victory over the Bears uh, last night, thanks to Zach Whitman. And he, Keith Evans ran for 250 yards. No, he was not involved in that game. But there was a uh, lot of eye form in that game. Let me tell you, it was the real Rob report. Mike Robinson was uh, the Seahawks fullback in that one. Wow. But Man, they, they sure drafted a fullback. But Sean Alexander that season, the first three games, gets 17 carries that go for uh, a combined 37 yards. And then I, or 27 yards. 17 for 27, and then I assume Ricky Waters must have gotten hurt because in Game 4, 31 carries for 176 yards. In Game 5, 33 carries for 142 yards. And then in Game 8, 35 carries for 266 yards in a 34-27 win over the Raiders. That was, and that was on Monday Night Football, correct? Uh, I think it was on Sunday Night Football. Or Sunday Night Football. Didn't it snow during that game? I do not recall that. It's, it freaking snowed. I'll Alexander, he was like Rajon Rondo before Rajon Rondo, because anytime the national TV lights were on, Alexander was going to ball out. At Husky Stadium, game weather, rain, 50 degrees. <laughs> I think there was a different game that Sean Alexander had, that a monster game, that it snowed. That might but, have been a couple years later. But the start time was, in fact, 8.36 p.m. So uh, <laughs> That's Eastern uh, time. Think about the, this quarterback room. As broadcasters, Trent Dilfer, Matt Hasselbeck, wow. and Brock Hewitt. I had not thought about that. Yeah, that is elite broadcasting trio right there. Huge. Uh, anything else on the 2001 Seahawks? I, it, again, it's just a season that I don't really remember that much. Uh, I mean, they didn't make the playoffs. Really nothing that notable happened this year. We didn't go to any of the games. We, no. we really I remember distinctly really loving Sean Alexander and distinctly loving Corn Robinson, especially in his rookie year. And I think Corn Robinson had like was this this year or it was like a short completion that he like broke a tackle and scored a long touchdown in? I don't remember that specifically. Well, it, it was a big deal at the time. <laughs> We should probably talk about Sonics because in terms of like long-term significance, like no one will actually remember the 2001 Sonics who went 44 and 38 and missed the playoffs, uh, despite Nate McPillan taking over for Paul Westfall as we talked about when we were remembering 2000. 
But it was literally the team that launched my career. So it's got that going for it, oh, which is nice. Oh, wow. We'll all remember that year. Cause, so midway through that year, like uh, I used to read a an NBA website called bskball.com, which now exists and has gone through several name changes, but now exists as basketballinsiders.com. And uh, Steve Kyler, who uh, ran it, still continues to run it, see him all the time at All-Star Games and Summer League and that sort of thing. Wow. Uh, and they had an opening for a Sonics writer on their site, for their unpaid Sonics writer. But and this both was, of us <clears throat> applied. What they – what they were trying to do at the time was trying to create a similar thing to like the athletic now, right? Where they were trying to have an on the ground reporter in each city. And I, this know, was I all... would not, I would not make that comparison. The, the athletic hiring established sports writers were. But I'm saying that the intent of it, given that it's 2001, they right? were trying to do blogs before blogs existed. That's what they were trying to do. And they were trying to coordinate from the nationals perspective individual blogs for each team so we both applied i got chosen as a sonics writer you got chosen as the denver nuggets writer i believe was your <laughs> consolation which lasted like two two weeks i think yeah I, I didn't have a lot to say about the denver nuggets i recall something about vishon leonard i'm not even sure he was on the team at that point but that's what i recall uh so i started writing about this and i was turning in like 2,000 word pieces each week which is just ridiculous in hindsight, but discovered, hey, I like this sports writing thing. Now, an important thing happens after the 2001 season, which is, so Howard Schultz has bought the team, mm. and there's a lot of talk about him <clears throat> training Gary Payton that summer, and or like right after the season, let's say. And you know who's not excited about it? Us. Because mm. we love Gary Payton. Yes. So we started... he, may, he may go into the Thoughtcast Hall of Fame this week. <laughs> the odds are very good he will go into the Feldenkast Hall of Fame next week. Uh, so I decided to start a website with your help. The famous cousin Katie was our IT person. She I don't know if I was really much help. I think I was just along for the ride. You handed out flyers. You and Mikey, I think, were technically part of it. Oh, and our seatmate Joseph Evans, who we've talked about on the pod before. Uh so we built a site, Keep Gary Payton, and handed out flyers at, like, they had a series of community forums where Howard Schultz was, like, meeting fans and taking their questions. And then also at the draft party at the Furtado Center, uh-huh. we were handing out flyers and got a shocking amount of media attention. So Ben B. posted this last year, I think, the uh, oh, or gosh. somewhat recently, the <laughs> Seattle PI story with a photo of uh, 19-year-old me and the famous cousin Katie in my dorm room in front of like the world's largest monitor. <laughs> it's it's an amazing sight to see. It's really a time capsule piece. Oh uh, uh, and then I was on I was on the Fox Sports. I think had had a feature on our draft night events. And there's mm-hmm. a there's video of you guys booing the Vladimir Rodmanovich pick. Yeah, you wanted to draft Mike Sweetney, right? Didn't you? No, that's not the Sweetney year. Sweetney was Collison. I was working for the team by that point. Oh. I wanted to draft Michael Bradley from Villanova, which would oh. not have worked out great. I also kind of wanted Dejanya Jop, and uh, oh, uh, it was Jop that you wanted. We didn't even. We thought his name was like Sagana Jop, right? His, yes. His name sort of changed during that time period. That's who you wanted. It was Jop. And really, Vladimir Monovich, probably all things considered, turned out to be a pretty good pick. Look, he's going into the Punk Cast Hall of Fame. <laughs> Very good. 
very solid. Oh, I can't wait for that induction. That's going to be Cord- a great one. Cornrows Hall of Fame at the very least. I mean, the real mistake, like, supposedly Howard Schultz desperately wanted the team to draft Tony Parker. Wait, really? Yeah, that would have worked what, out. Did he well. write about that in his book, too? <laughs> <laughs> He's got a lot of misgivings about what happened with the Sonics. Oh, so many misgivings. Uh, and he, and just, he, he knew Tony Parker was the one. This was the summer that Howard Schultz's single best move as ownership brought back the green and gold. Well, I mean, really, what ended up happening with Gary, Gary Payton, Payton was one of his better moves. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, we don't talk about that right now. Uh, so they brought back the green and gold, and then, like, I was so inspired by the success of that of Keep GP and the uh, BSK Ball column that that fall launched a Sonics website, again designed by Katie, SonicCentral.com, that is still in, in host this of this very we, we podcast. Her, we call her Java Girl. <laughs> She's not even here to defend herself on that one. Java, this is Java Girl 20 to you. Java and Girl not, 20 to you. Not Java in the way that Howard Schultz would recognize well, Java. No. That's for JavaScript. Before she became KT Car 20, much like I <laughs> use Rich Amaral for all of my usernames, Katie used GP. <laughs> oh my so god. So all in all, a momentous year in Sonic's franchise history. Uh, in like really the year that started my sports writing career. So good times. We have some other breaking news on the podcast. Have you seen this? That Stefan Diggs is going to Buffalo? Stefan Diggs is not going to be a Seahawk. I've, I've seen the price they. Man, I guess it's not that much. What were the picks? What were the picks that they got? Uh, first, fifth, sixth this year, and fourth in 2021. That is, man. but he's under contract for quite a few years. Yes. Yeah, it's reasonable. I mean, you know, the teams are just giving away wide receivers. Some other, like, if you look at that that trade in terms of in. In context of the DeAndre Hopkins trade, then it's just like, it's a terrible price to pay. But when you're thinking of it as a normal trade for an elite level wide receiver, then it's not bad. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. But also, fuck me. Well, we'll talk more about the Seahawks later. (laughs) Uh, This was your first taste of media attention, though, right? Correct. In 2001. And you could not get enough of it. That's it. That's fair. That's fair. I remember you did the you did an interview upstairs at our grandparents' house. That is correct because we that couldn't do it at our house. Our, our house was too many, too messy. That no, that was uh, Como. That was on Como Four. Oh, you were on Como Four for just doing a Keep GP website. Yeah, and they had like to get like some action shots of me working on the website <laughs> up on the there. on the biggest computer ever. <laughs> that was a different biggest computer ever, but yes. I remember moving you into college when I was in high school and just being like, Jesus Christ, this is the hardest process. And I'd be carrying those fuckers. Like, I would have to carry either the computer or the monitor, both of which weighed 65 pounds minimum and were super awkward to carry. And I'd have to carry that up, like, into elevators and flights of stairs. What building were you living in at the time? Uh, in 2001, I would have been in McCarty, I think. Man, I remember dropping you off and it just being terrible. <laughs> and then by the time I got you to know, college, I packed up like nothing. <laughs> you know what was really pleasant was helping you move 
on Labor Day weekend when it was the hottest possible temperature. <laughs> it was great. But at least you didn't have to carry a fucking monitor and laptop. Or those true. TVs, the TVs that we used to have that were like 130 pounds, right? And it was, all the weight would be in one place, but then it was awkward to hold it in the other place. Wow, we used to have to move so much shit into dorm rooms. Wait, was I in McCarty or Hagen? I can't even remember anymore. It's been so long. Now all you do to move into a college dorm is you just grab your super tiny, like, maybe, like, MacBook or whatever, and then you're in. You bring nothing else. Yeah, you probably don't have TVs anymore. You stream everything. Yeah, uh, definitely are you not bringing 1,000-pound TVs. We should talk about the 2001 University of Washington football team. We should actually talk about the 2001 Husky basketball team, because the men's basketball team. Because that was the first time, like, we had gotten into the Huskies, but like we said, it had only been to the one game at Key Arena. And then as a student, I got season tickets in that year. And it was a very bad team. But there was one super exciting game at the end of the season where they knocked off UCLA on senior day, as we talked about a few weeks ago, is sort of like the uh, UW women beating UCLA on their senior day. Yeah. I think that was the only game that I went to that year. This was the David Dixon year, right? Yeah. He tore his ACL that year. Uh, or I'm sorry, Marlon Shelton tore his ACL that year. Uh, Michael Johnson, in his last game at UW, went off in that one. Brian Brown, the son, oh, son of Brian downtown Brown Freddie Brown. Was who I was thinking of. Who, or no, it was Dixon who was just like... He's an enormous he was center. Like, but he was like not actually that tall, and he was just kind of chubby. Uh, he was at least six nine. Oh yeah, he he was just like the the he had a college body. <laughs> he was just kind of like a big kid. He was one like. of the forgotten good players in Husky basketball history. Is uh, Will Perkins? I guess he actually wasn't that good. Okay. He was definitely forgotten though. Thalo Green cut his hair for uh, locks of love. Uh. You had freshman Curtis Allen, who was the one guy who got to stick around for the good days. Grant Leap, who I later saw practice against the Storm many times, now the head coach at SBU, Grant Leap. Oh, good for him. Yeah. So there you go. 2001 Husky basketball. But 2001 it, Husky. It was, it was actually completely lost year for Husky basketball. Oh, yeah. Was this the, this was the second to last year of Bob Bender? Yes. So this was not his last year. We were just waiting, spending the entire time. We'll talk about that in 2002. I mean, technically, he debuted in 2001, but we were spending the entire year waiting for Doug Wren. Oh, yeah, waiting on Doug Wren. Uh, uh, I, I mean, you're talking about that entire team, though, like, aside from, like, hint of Curtis Allen, like, and, and I've fully admitted this, I have, have been, especially at that time, 100% bandwagon Husky basketball fan, whereas, like, I've, I've cared about Husky basketball. Now I always sort of care about Husky basketball, despite how much I hate them. Uh, <laughs> I just can't help myself. But at the time, it was like, if they were bad, I was paying no attention at all to Husky basketball. But if they were good, I was definitely paying attention. And let me just say, I remember so little about these players. I think you end up getting me a ticket from your student tickets or whatever and went to that one game against UCLA that was fun. And I just distinctly remember, like, thinking it was, like, cool to see Jason Capone live. Uh, Not Earl Watson? And I, I think Capone was a bigger deal than Earl Watson. Oh, Capone Watson was then. a bigger deal. Yes, he was. Uh, but it was just like, I have no memory of basically any of those players, except for Phalo Green when he was on the teams that were good earlier on. Correct. And then Curtis, Curtis Allen when he was on the teams that were good 
later on. Yes. <laughs> they, they link together if you they overlap like good husky basketball history. And then there's just like four forgotten years in between. Something like that, yeah. So you had football that year, lost Marcus Triasasopo, lost a number of seniors <clears throat> off the 2000 team, but still came into the year ranked number 15 and a showdown in week one of the season against number 11 Michigan. Something we hope we will see something similar this year. Uh, a game the Huskies trailed most of the way before the Rock Alexander, I believe, was the return touchdown in this wow, one. Wow, Rock Alexander. He returned a uh, blocked field goal for a touchdown in this one. And then Omari Lowe had a return touchdown of an interception. And those two oh, combined to give the Huskies the 23-18 win over John Navarre in Michigan in the Cody Pickett's first start. Oh, wow. Heisey. Cody Pickett, not that good in 2001. <laughs> he completed 56% of his passes for eight yards per attempt, had 10 touchdowns and 14 interceptions. It, it was a different sport at the time. It was a very different sport. But the, Hus- <laughs> the Huskies started that season 4-0, and lost 35-13 at number seven UCLA. Oh, man, you know what we need to remember this year? That This is what this reminds me. I remember, remember, no, I guess that's not this year. Uh, that's something totally different. Uh, then we're 7-1 and one before losing two of their final three of the regular season. Lost 49-24 at Oregon State. We talked last year, last week about how good those Oregon State teams were. Uh, and then so the game that they were scheduled to play the weekend after September 11th yes. was at Miami. The rematch of the previous year. They scheduled both Michigan and Miami in the same year. The scheduling was very different back oh, then. Oh, the Husky football had balls back then. <laughs> so that Miami team... One of the greatest teams in college football history. I, I will forever remember this as being the greatest college football team I've ever seen in my entire life. They were so loaded with talent, except at quarterback. Ken uh, Dorsey? <laughs> compared to the rest of this game, you've got a running back room of Clinton Portis, Willis McGahee, Frank Gore, at wide receiver. I guess only really Andre Johnson was the only notable wide really receiver. Really only Andre Johnson? Like, yes. still. Well, they had Santana Moss the year before. They'd lost him. Uh, at tight end, they had both Kellen Winslow and uh, Jeremy Shockey. Mm-hmm. Kellen Winslow, who the Huskies tried so hard to get him. Uh, defensively, Ed Reed. Vince Wolfork, I remember being on the team. Jonathan Vilma. Sean Taylor. Jonathan Vilma. Like, that, and William Joseph, who was like the number 11 pick in the draft. Jeremy McDougal, like this, this team has so many players, some of whom Antrell Roll, Mike Rumpf, I, I think also is like a first or second pick of the draft, like some players who ended up being legendary players in the NFL, like, you know, Ed Reed and Andre Johnson, but, and Clinton Portis and Frank Gore, Jesus Christ. But just like, I mean, that the, running like, back room is incredible. I know running backs don't matter. Uh, they did not play a close game until the final Week or until the uh, ACC championship game, I assume this must have was been. Was that against? That wasn't Vicks Virginia Tech, was it? Uh, could have been his sophomore, redshirt freshman year, but no, no, it wasn't. And they beat Virginia Tech 26 24 on the road in their one close game, then beat number four Nebraska 37 14 in the Rose Bowl to clinch the national championship. Well, I've heard of very few players in that Virginia Tech team, just D'Angelo Hall. Basically. Uh, anyway, they beat the Huskies <laughs> 65-7. to seven. I mean, that was like, 
we didn't go into that game expecting to win. I mean, the previous week they'd beaten number 15 Syracuse 59 to nothing. We were hoping right? to keep like, it close. Did not keep Oh, my God. Cody Pickett threw five interceptions in just that one game. <laughs> <laughs> that was – it was 100% of the aggression that they had from losing in Seattle the previous year came out on the Huskies in that game. And it was like, there was no chance. The Noskies played a really fun holiday bowl against number nine, Texas, and lost 47-43. <laughs> what a wild game. Did was, we watch that at your house that you lived with Katie? Was that where we watched the holiday bowl? Uh, when it was freezing cold? I think we watched a different game there. I think we watched the Cougars play in a in a bowl game there. Because, we, yeah, we didn't live there at that point. I was in a dorm, remember? Mm. The Cougars played in the holiday bowl in 2003 is what you're thinking of. We watched that at Grammy and Grandpa's house with Katie and the rest of our cousins. Man, this team. Jesus Christ. You still marveling the, at Miami? They were just awesome. Then they were fun, too. It was just like, this was when, it's funny that Larry Coker was the coach. Uh, and they had Chud as the OC. Uh, but it was like, there was. there's always a part of you that just, because Miami is cool, right? Like Miami... It is and always will be the coolest college football program in the country. That is correct. And it's like when Miami is cool and when Miami is really good, it's a good thing. They're the anti-Notre Dame, right? Like you always just – you have a lingering feeling always that you want Notre Dame to be bad, you know? And there's always this – it's this – oh, Kelly Jennings also. Future Seahawks, Kelly Jennings. Uh, There's just a lingering feeling that no matter what, you just want Miami to be good. And Miami at this time period wasn't just good. They were the best, and they were the the you good, right? And, like, this talent spread throughout the NFL, like, four or five NFL running backs, and at least one of whom will be in the Hall of Fame. It was, like, it was a privilege to have gotten beaten 65 to nothing, 65 to 7. Yes. By that team. Right? Yeah. Like, it's fun sometimes just to play really good teams. So that, that's all that I remember about that game. And I remember Vince Wolfort just being a beast. Checks out. Wow. They also played Troy State that year. Um, but no, like, they had a lot of a lot of games that they just destroyed teams. But UW was the, the worst. That was, yeah, that was probably the biggest demolition. Uh, Clear Channel wouldn't want me to say that. Uh, Lauren Jackson <laughs> was the number one pick by the Seattle Storm that year and should have won Rookie of the Year. She was robbed by Jackie Styles, and I'm hoping that eventually history will forget that Jackie Styles, who, oh, we should have talked about this. UW women came within a game of the Final Four that year before losing to Jackie Styles in the Elite Eight. Really? Yeah, that was a, that was a fun who win was, for the UW women. Who was on that team? Uh, Megan Franza was a senior. She was dating Marcus Tuiasa Sopa, so that was pretty. That was a UW power couple at the time. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Let's see here. Kristen O'Neill would have been on that team, right? Or no, maybe she's a little too young for that one. Lori Payne, probably. I have no recollection of any of these players. Oh, right, the Mendiolas. I can't believe I, I forgot about say, the Mendiolas. Two Italian Italian twins. Yeah, Julian, Juliana, and Gioconda <laughs> Mendiola. Julius. I, I remember that being a pretty big deal throughout the Sons of Italy. <laughs> <laughs> All the lodges were very excited. 
<laughs> Juliana, she was a, they were, I think they were the same age as me. I think they were freshmen that year, but Juliana was already on her way to stardom. Did she play in the NBA? WNBA? Uh, she was definitely in training camp with the Monarchs. I remember being very upset that the Storm didn't pick her. That's that's one of my distinct Julie Mendiola <laughs> memories. Also, I think their brothers went to prison. Oh wow! <laughs> I think there was there was uh there may have been. Uh, uh... Well, anyway, two thousand one in music. <laughs> um, so, is, is are we are we done with sports for the year two thousand one? I think we are. I'm gonna look up this story. Uh, so I think, I think first, before we get into culture in 2001, I think we have to remember the last great earthquake of our lifetimes. Oh, yes. The, or at least the most recent great earthquake That of is our another, lifetimes. I mean, it, it was the single biggest earthquake in Seattle of our lifetimes. Which, if, if you really want to break it down, if you want to get bleak. There, there was an, there's another where were you moment. We're overdue for another big one. Um, <laughs> undoubtedly are, and hopefully some of the I mean, preparation. It's actually been quite a long time since we've even had a small earthquake in western Washington. I mean, the only but, time recently I felt an earthquake was when I was in Vegas for summer league. I haven't felt an earthquake since the Nisqually quake on January, February 28th, 2001. Right. That's off the top of my head that I remember the date of the earthquake. So, uh, I was home from It was on Ash Wednesday, wasn't it? That seems right. And like a more important thing to you than me. Um, <clears throat> I was home from from school sick that day. And I remember just I was sitting in bed or something and me and Jan were both there. And then it started shaking and running around the house like an insane person. And then ending up, because at the time, you were supposed to go find a doorway before we learned that you're supposed to get under a hard surface. Like, running around like a crazy person and then ending up in a doorway. I was in my dorm room skipping class because there was a, uh, a front office baseball league draft going on that I <laughs> needed to watch. You had to be there for the FOBL draft. Oh, it's a different time. <laughs> I don't know if we, we have time to delve fully in the FOBL on this podcast. On let's, let's we both get here. to front office football. We did. I think I mentioned it last week, didn't I? Uh, and so I was in my room, and yeah, I remember doing the same thing of like running around, like not knowing where to go. That's and, uh, the reality of earthquakes is that you run around like a crazy person. I didn't in Vegas. Like I just grasped, like, oh, this is an earthquake. Huh? How about that? Well, aren't you special? But it was more that was more of like a rolling quake, the one in Vegas, whereas this was more of a hard shake. There's there's just nothing that can replicate all of a sudden out of nowhere the ground shaking. Yeah. <laughs> it's a very weird experience. <laughs> it, it sure is. <laughs> We're describing things as weird today. Uh, no, we are. Uh, there was a class from Thai High School. So I think what they did, I wasn't there, is there was a class from Thai High School who was at the Capitol that day, which is basically right near the epicenter of the earthquake. Uh, so they felt it really bad. I remember that being a big deal. And then I remember hearing from fellow classmates that what they did is they moved everybody out to these bit to the sports fields outside and then sent them home 
which seems like kind of a crazy thing to do. But again, we were talking about September 11th. They didn't do that. But they're like, there has been an earthquake. Everybody go the fuck home. Well, I mean, you probably want to check for structural damage and that sort of thing. I think that's the concern. I distinctly remember thinking that aftershocks were going to be a thing. Uh, and then maybe this is, maybe you can take this out. This was like, it was right after dad's funeral or at least a couple weeks after. And me and Jan went and drove and got a death certificate right after. Cause this is a fun podcast went and got, got a death certificate right after the earthquake. Yeah. 2001 was a rough year. It's, it is very safe to say. Yeah. But we signed a, Rich Alexis, I think. No, <laughs> Charles, Charles Frederick. Or Charles Frederick. It was the big that signing, signing day year. Big signing day that year for Neuheisel. Uh, oh, and, and Reggie like, Williams. Reggie Williams was part of that. Oh, class, wasn't yeah, he? man. Whew. Free, no, free Reggie No, maybe Williams. he was the next year. He, he would have been the next year, I guess. So th- this was the year that I fully changed the dial, right? I, I tuned the dial down from 93.3 all the way to the end. Wouldn't, wouldn't that be turning the dial up? No. Okay. And I transitioned in this time period where it's like I'd only listened to Cube growing up, right? I didn't really dabble with almost anything else. Occasionally would see some videos on MTV, but it was like what we were interested in was mainstream hip-hop, right? That's correct. And in 2001, I don't know exactly what happened or what changed. I think this is probably a transition that a lot of people made around this time period, which I'm going to talk about when I feel like mainstream hip-hop got really bad in a couple of years. And let me just tell you, Ja Rule's involved. But <laughs> Where is Ja? <laughs> but I had become... Uh, I, I had gotten into basically like mainstream rock music, and more so than any other artist, because there was a lot of really bad mainstream rock music being played on the end. But it was like... I was arty, Right? And it was 2001, my favorite band of all time in 2001 was the band Tool, because I was a 47-year-old white man. There you uh, go. <laughs> and it was like, th- there was there were no bands that I cared about more than both Tool and then Weezer. So Weezer had not put out an album, which at the time seemed like so long, which we were not judging things in Chinese democracy terms. It had been... <laughs> like five years, right? There have been bands who have gone away for decades and then come back, but it was like Weezer went away forever. And I had one relationship ever, so I got Pinkerton, their most recent album that came out in 1996, at, at some point along the way. And it was like, wow, Weezer and Pinkerton then went away forever. And it, they came back within five years, similar to Jay-Z's retirement, which happens not too long after this. Uh, more on Jay-Z later. I'm looking forward but to it, because that was an exception to it, the end. It was like those two bands were the bands that I cared about in 2001. That was it. It was like I liked a lot of other things, but if anything were at the top of that list, it was Tool and Weezer. And these felt like serious artists for whatever reason. But it was the same thing that I was talking about with the Mariners, the like indie thing, where I was like, yeah, I remember Buddy Holly or whatever, right? Like we all remember watching that video. It was MTV Video of the Week for weeks on end watching that. And like, like obviously I 
paid attention to like the Weezer singles that came out from the Blue Album. But then it was like Pinkerton. That's what matters to me, right? Because I mean, it's a good record, or whatever. But it was also like critically panned. But then everybody loves it now, and I was like, this is what I'm about. It's like the initial critics who heard it didn't get it, but we get it, right? <clears throat> And then so there there was a day, I want to say it was like April 15th or something. I should look up exactly what day this was, where both of these bands released records on the exact same day. My two favorite bands of all time. And they both were coming back after long absences. For Tool, I think it was a little bit shorter. Uh, and for Weezer, it had been five years. And neither, it was the Green Album by Weezer, which I really didn't care that much about at all. <laughs> It was like a fine record. I think it actually made them very, it was like what reaffirmed popularity. And then for Tool was the record Lateralis, which I also didn't really care that much about. <laughs> it was like, it, again, it was a fine record. But like th them happening on the same day, I made Jan drive me down because Easy Street Records used to be open. This was like pretty, pretty hipster of me as a 16 year old or whatever. I made Jan drive me down to Easy Street Records on Monday into Tuesday night, because records used to come out on Tuesday, and buy both of these CDs on the Tuesday night. Sounds about right. And then I, I had to like, <laughs> like, like, decide which I was going to listen to first. I'm sure the tool tool album was like 79 minutes or something insane, and I was like, <laughs> I need to figure out which which one I'm going to listen to first between these two. And it's like I'm going to listen to them so many times or whatever. Uh, also, I think Will Ferrell did Island of the Sun with Weezer on SNL that year, too, where he was playing maracas. Do you remember this? Sounds right. Uh, so then later that year, three bands that all released records in 2001, they said that Weezer would never tour again because it had been four years. And <laughs> a show that I went to at Key Arena, Weezer, Tenacious D, featuring a young upstart actor named Jack Black. And Jimmy Eat World opening. And it was, like, I remember they played like one song from Pinkerton. And I was like, wow, everybody says that they don't play any songs from Pinkerton live. And they did. You know, they played like El Scorcho or something. And I thought this was such a thrilling moment. Uh, and I remember also being like, Tenacious D is a joke band. Nobody's going to like them forever. <laughs> Weezer is where it's at. <laughs> oh, you Oh my, my main memory of music in 2001 is listening to a lot of classic rock, like a lot of classic rock, uh, probably entirely too much Boston in 2001. <laughs> I think this was the year that I started getting more interested in classic rock. So I think 2001 was the year that I, and probably as a byproduct of getting into Tool or whatever, um, uh, System of Down's seminal record, Toxicity, came out that year. Um, <laughs> seminal, huh? Yeah, for a system of a down. Like, they just banned all the Rage Against the Machine songs. Um, I think because of our Uncle Paul, he gave me burn CDs, because this is how you transfer music in the year 2001. Oh, I've got a burn CD story coming. Burn CDs of every single Led Zeppelin album. And he would, like, print out the, like, artwork and stuff. So it'd be a burn CD, and it would be, like, a super pixelated album cover of the actual artwork for the CD. And I remember having this like cereal box or something full of every single Led Zeppelin CD 
And at some point deciding in 2001, which Chuck Holzman wrote about this too, which I don't think is true anymore, where he is like every single high school boy at some point has a moment where they determine the only music they're going to listen to for the rest of their life is Led Zeppelin. Right. And for me, that year was 2001. Yeah, he, he told some story about like being at a radio appearance and uh, the there's someone else with him and the like one of the producers is wearing a Led Zeppelin t-shirt and the guy being like, the other person being like, I went to high school with that guy. And not that they actually went to high school together, but just he means that he went to high school with a person like that because everyone did. I mean, I still think that there are kids like that. Like, I, I don't think the Led Zeppelin kid is gone forever from the timeline. It's probably a but, smaller number at this point. I would think it's safe. And even, even when I was at Thai high school in 2001, there was really just me. It's not like there were a lot of Led Zeppelin kids, but at some point in every high school, I can probably accept that there probably still are some of those kids. Wait, this reminds me, was 2001 the year I got the nickname Al? Mm, I don't think so. Maybe it was. I think it was. Wow. Because I listened to the Paul Simon song, You Can Call Me Al. Uh And then, as I recall, it walked into my bedroom where, for some reason, you were hanging out and not me, and said... Uh Hey, you can call me Al, like many people would maybe do after this song played. But no one else would take it seriously. And now I'm Uncle Al to your children. That is true. It's very strange. Life wasn't easy being a wacky 15-year-old, 16-year-old. <laughs> you said I'd like to be called Al from now on. No, I don't, maybe you remember it better than I do. That's how I remember it. Either way, you took it serious, much more seriously than I expected. And here we are today. Uh, also in music in that year, it was so the, this it fully happened the next year thanks to our friends at like Spin Magazine and the Music Writers of America being disinterested in writing about System of a Down anymore and stained. Um, Jeez, the this the system dis- systematic System of a Down ris- disrespect. Uh. I think System of a Down is still kind of cool now. Stained is not cool. This yeah. was the the beginning of the timeline where music that was still corporately marketed by very, very large companies, um, but felt, quote-unquote, indie, started becoming a thing. It was called and, indie. Let's be clear. And it was like... 2001 was the year. Is this it? By the Strokes comes out in 2001. Slated for release in the U.S. Came out much earlier in the U.K. because this that was the type of thing that you could do in 2001, where music could come out in different territories at different times because not everybody listened to music on the exact same platform. And that record, different album cover in the U.S. than it had elsewhere. Different track list because it was slated to come out. I think on September 28th. In the U.S., and the song New York City Cops, Name Too Bright, had to be gone from that record because that would not have flown on a major label release post-September 11th. Imagine what Clear Channel would say about it, right? <laughs> also in 2001, uh, the, the record White Blood Cells by the White Stripes came out, and the uh. like, the video for Fell in Love with a Girl, I remember that summer. So I'm like, I'm into Tool and Weezer and Led Zeppelin. Which you would think that the White Stripes are like in line with those artists. And now when you look at it, going back, you're like, okay, what? the White Stripes are very influenced by Led Zeppelin. At the time, I was 
diametrically opposed to this because I was like, what is this indie rock music, which I had never heard the term indie before. Um, (laughs) What is this alternative rock bullshit that's happening? I was like, the only good music that's ever been made is Tool and Weezer and classic rock music. And I was like, but I do, I remember being at least slightly intrigued by it. And the video for last night by the Strokes being like, fuck, I'm, I'm kind of drawn to this, you know? <laughs> I was like, I, it's, hard, it's hard for me and I don't want to admit it, but I'm a little bit drawn to this. And by the time we get to 2002 and 2003, it's like all have sort of left the tools behind and the system was of a down behind and moved much more into this type of music as like a gate. These are gateway bands to actual indie music. Are we going to talk about Yankee Hotel Foxtrot at some point here? I know we kind of already did on Let's Remember Some Years. And of the tabs that I have up, 2001 is the beginning of Dad Rock. No. Oh. <laughs> it's not the beginning of Dad Rock. Like the first second Neil Young played a core, Dad Rock begun. But <laughs> Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, as a record that was supposed to be released, was released online due to an, an issue with their label beforehand which has been well documented uh it's like is that doc, no that documentary streaming anywhere of that this album is i'm trying to break your heart yeah i don't know i'm gonna try and search that out i watched it on dvd in like 2005 or something <laughs> uh i think i got it from the library the <clears throat> but so like there are bands like Ian Hill and Tal Foxtrot who are signed or reprised to a warner label and it was like, this is not the kind of music that they were looking for. But at the same time, bubbling underneath, because I also want to say this is like the year that started to save Sub Pop, right? Like Sub Pop now is a very, very large label. Late 90s, early 2000s was not necessarily the case. And until they sort of pivoted from the like hard rock into more indie music. So this is the year that O Inverted the World by The Shins comes out. Uh, also the photo album by Death Cab for Cutie. It's like... Indie is fully happening. I'm unaware of this as a 16 year old, right? But it's like yeah, I feel I like experience this retroactively. Like my memory of listening to Yankee, strongest memory of listening to Yankee Hotel Foxtrot is listening to it with you driving back from Bruce Springsteen concert in Portland in like 2012. Well, you were way way late to Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. I'm, I'm aware. Let's be clear. So I had listened to it. I was wondering what year KXB flipped over from KCNU. Here we go. In 2001, a partnership was formed between Paul Allen's Experience Music Project and KCMU, which provided the station with significant funding through 2005. There you are. The station's call letters were switched to KXP. It moved to new studios near downtown Seattle, which were provided rent-free by the EMP. Uh, This was before their space at Seattle Center. So, like... 2001 is when KXP literally started existing, but, like, became... Some a name on the map. And by 2003, I was fully listening to it. It was something that I was completely unaware of in 2000 and, or in 2001. But it was like the, the combination of all of these different things meant that more and more people. So like that, like, I mean, things like Yehiotel Foxtrot and O Inverted World and the photo album and even the strokes as like I was saying, like a gateway, despite being a major label release, like these things were leading to indie being a major genre by 2005, 2006. 
this was really the beginning of it. And this was the first groundwork that was being laid of like, you know, at the time, I don't, I don't think Owen inverted world was like a huge record at the time, but like, you know, Braff heard it. So also, I just want to say that Yankee hotel Foxtrot is probably a top 10 all time album for me. There we go. Uh, didn't get its full release. By until 2002, such, yeah. Until 2002. It was streaming in 2001. I counted it as 2001. A streaming, quote-unquote. <laughs> <There was> no... <laughs> well, okay. Available for download. Can we talk... I, where are you going here? I mean, th- so this was also a bit of a transition for how people listen to music. Right, because I wanted the... to talk about the blueprint. Because it starts with Jay-Z saying, because I listened to this yesterday, thank you for your purchase. <laughs> Because in 2001, you just assumed if someone was listening to it, they must have purchased it. I mean, Napster had happened. I know. But yes. We're just about to get iPods, which which really, I would say, changes like the idea of iPods and owning a bunch of music on one device is sort of the the first step to getting to Spotify's and where we are today. And listening to music on a phone like device. Right. But ironically, I don't remember listening to the blueprint until like well after the fact when I burned a copy of your copy of it onto one of my computers in like 2006 or 2007 of the blueprint. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if I listened to it a ton before then. Wow. Really a theme that you're way behind on things. Uh, I at that point, like. I can specifically trace, I think, to the song Izzo, me thinking that Jay-Z had sold out. Oh, I had full on. It's funny because the Jay-Z that we liked is probably Jay-Z's worst record at the time. And it was like not at all not radio friendly. Like Hard Knock Life was not like, oh, yeah, that's a gritty Jay-Z. Yeah. And we never heard of Reasonable Doubt. Like we, we had no idea that that even existed. We'd, we'd never heard a song from it, but it was as same as the Mariners thing. It was like we were on Jay-Z early. And, oh, no, everybody's on Jay-Z. It's <laughs> like I heard him on KXP before – or KXP – on Cube before you heard him on Cube or whatever. <laughs> but let me just tell you about a little man named Kanye West because he has to get some credit in – the return of Jay-Z, right? Because, like, Jay-Z was a popular artist and a big artist, and Jay-Z, one of the best rappers of all time. But Undisputed. Excluding nobody. Production, production on this record. Like, what do you think are the best songs from The uh, Blueprint? Number one, Heart of the City. Produced by Kanye West. Takeover. Produced by Kanye West. Uh... Either Renegade or Song Cry would be my next choice. Uh, <laughs> Song Cry is produced by Just Blaze. And also, Girls, Girls, Girls produced by Just Blaze. But H to the Izzo, V to the Izzo, that's still like the anthem, get your damn hands up. Like I can respect it. For now. There are songs that are better, but it's like, that is the fucking song for this record. Yes. And it's like, Kanye, Kanye made... The Jay-Z sound that transitioned Jay-Z from 90s rapper into mogul. And it was like, we had no idea who Kanye West was in the year 2001. 
but this is like the the on a large scale the first real introduction of Kanye West. He doesn't rap at all, right? Like we don't hear his voice, but just production wise, I mean, the producers on this record are incredible. But it's like Takeover, Izzo, Heart of the City, which is probably I don't know. Never Change is pretty good too. And Never Change. It's like there's Kanye, and then just plays on two other good tracks. And Timbaland. It's like you have to give credit where credit is due. Because, I mean, Jay-Z recognizing also these beats, but like this is the first introduction of Kanye. And I think it's not until 2003 that College Dropout comes out, but it's like the stage is set right here. Have you queued up our friends at hiphopgoldenage.com? I have, I have more to say about, about music at the time, because okay. I do think we talked about Stankonia setting the stage for the next two decades of music. And the other album that I think does the same thing for a different genre of music. So there's hip hop and then there's Discovery by Daft Punk. And oh. it's like th- this is the, the record that it, it, tra- like. I didn't listen to electronic music in 2001. And I remember seeing the video for one more time and being like, what the fuck is this? You know, and it was just like my whole mind, even though like the idea of electronic music and hip hop being separate things is kind of a, an absurd notion. Uh, it was like, this is scary to me and this isn't. But I feel like after discovery came out the next up through today, right? Like artists who are massive now in electronic music, are not that without this album. And it's like they, they took and granted like the previous, the first Daft Punk record before then it was like very catchy and very like pop music. They just smoothed it out for discovery. And it was like, this is the shape of electronic pop music to come. And every single electronic pop artist that has happened after this is because of discovery by Daft Punk. And it slaps still. I really don't know the singles off that one, but yes. And well, and also, speaking of Kanye, sampled Harder, Better, Faster, Stronger, not too much later. Uh, 2001 in film. The only real... I, I feel like it was the beginning of a lot of franchises, which, made, you know, we'd flipped over to the years 2000. It's like we're fully established in the year 2000. And you have the first Fast and the Furious, the first Harry Potter, the first Lord of the Rings, the first Shrek. Like, think about how many movies came after this. The first Oceans movie, the first Monsters, Inc. movie. Yeah. Like, how many sequels happened after that? Planet of the Apes, there have been numerous sequels to. Uh, but the the one memory that I was going to mention the year, uh, <laughs> 2001. So we were at Chris Long's house for that Super Bowl, is that right? That sounds right. There's like a big group of Mount Rainier High School students and then me. And for the Ravens Giants Super Bowl, which our hero, Trent Dilfer, won. Correct. <clears throat> and I remember at halftime of that Super Bowl, they had an ad for Lord of the Rings, which was coming out later. And everybody there, because we were in a bunch of nerds, were like, oh, I'm so excited to see this. And I remember being like, is this called Lord of the Rings? <laughs> it was like, what is this movie called? What is it? Lord of the Rings? <laughs> and just like like the John Noaches and the 
Chris Long's of the world being excited about that. And I was just like, I don't know what the fuck you all are talking about. Somehow I missed uh, out on that entirely because I was not into any, anything like that. Have you ever even seen The Lord of the Rings? Nope. Wow. <laughs> Can't say I have any interest in I got into it later because I listened to Ramble On by Led Zeppelin, and I was like, all right, sign me up. Bye. <laughs> oh, 2001. This staff, look at the staff for the Ravens in that Super Bowl. Brian Bilk was the head coach, and then you have... Marvin Lewis was the defensive coordinator, right? Yep. Uh, was John Harbaugh on that staff? Uh, no, Harbaugh was not on that He's staff. Too yet. young yet. Hmm. Defensive line coach is Rex Ryan. Oh, okay. Defensive assistant, defensive line coach is Mike Smith. Linebackers is Jack Del Rio. Wow. Yeah. So a lot of mediocre coaches in there. And they're all on defense too. The offensive coaches, it really, I mean, people got jobs because of that Ravens defense. Hey, Marvin Lewis is not a mediocre coach, by the way. I Marvin have a Lewis lot of respect for Marvin coach. Lewis. Matt Cavanaugh? Yeah, he was, was, their, quarterback. was their offense. Or he was their quarterback coach at that point. He was the offensive coordinator slash quarterbacks. Was Matt nice. Cavanaugh. And the offense is just, so they had both Priest Holmes and Jamal Lewis at running back. Thunder and Lightning. Yeah. Uh, that Ravens team was pretty fun, though. They were they were like the they were the proto Seahawks team that won the Super Bowl and all people at the time thought Russell Wilson was a Trent Dilfer like quarterback. Um, <laughs> Some people still think that Trent Dilfer might think that. I don't oh know if Trent Dilfer God. thinks that. No, <laughs> all analysts from the Seahawks 2014 <laughs> yeah. think that. <laughs> I, I don't think Matt Hass does. Give me Matt Hass more credit than that. <laughs> uh, oh, all right, let me let me just check. Do we have any more anything more to say about 2001? I think we've covered most of it. Are you looking at hiphopgoldenage.com? Let's, let's see what our friends at hiphopgoldenage.com have to say about the year 2001. Top 40 albums of 2001. At number one, we discussed it earlier. It's the blueprint. And number two, an artist who I've never heard of called Jay Live and the best part. And number three, meant to mention this. So th this is sort of the beginning. We have indie rap is really becoming a thing in the early 2000s. Backpack and, rap. And we, it's before. Uh, yeah, I guess it would be backpack rap. But so Def Jux, uh, LP's label, LP of Run the Jewels for you. Um so LP's label, Def Jocks, Rhyme Sayers, this is like the, the first more commercially uh, popular Atmosphere album with the Lucy Ford EPs. Uh, but so we have Cannibal Ox with the Cold Vein on Def Jocks, Master Ace and Disposable Arts. Oh, no. I've clicked on 2006. We're not there yet, HipHopGoldenAge.com. Wait! Show me Stillmatic. At number five, Stillmatic. All I need is one mic. And also, also that year on Def Jux, the album Labor Days. The, and then number 11, the Lucy Ford EPs. Lucy Ford, the Atmosphere EPs. So indie rap is full on happening in 2001. Again, we're unaware. We're listening to System of a Town. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> 